Well, our Bible reading this morning is from Mark chapter 15. So Mark's account of the crucifixion and death of Jesus. So Mark chapter 15 and beginning at verse 21. So Mark 15 and verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, uh -huh, you who destroyed the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Easter and Christmas seem to be the favourite times of year for so-called religious movies to be shown on television. 
And one year on the Sunday night before Easter, Steve Martin starred as an itinerant evangelist in a movie called Leap of Faith. And the scene is set in small town USA. And in preparation for the big event, not a stone is left unturned. There's the huge marquee. There's the powerful sound system. There's the finely robed choir. And there's this huge crucifix at the front. All the trappings are there. But it's one big hoax. There are healings. There are slayings in the spirit. But it's all a setup. This evangelist is a fraud. But then at the end of the movie, there's, a, there's, a, <coughs> there's an ironic twist. A crippled teenager whose appearance had not been staged is brought to the front and he is miraculously healed. The evangelist is absolutely stunned. He confesses that he is a fake and he hitchhikes out of town under the cover of night. And then as soon as he gets a ride, it begins to rain. And that was an answer to the prayer that he had offered during the evangelistic campaign. So in the end, we are left with this strong sense of irony. The man is a self-confessed charlatan, yet a healing occurs. A cripple is set on his feet. This man, this evangelist, is a con man. And yet his prayers are answered. The rains come tumbling down. And now I want to put it to you that the Gospel of Mark turns on this same sense of irony. And yet for precisely the opposite reason. Steve Martin acted the part of a fake but good things happen. Mark has portrayed Jesus as in every way the, the, the genuine article. His miracles are well attested. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He casts out demons. He stills storms. And more than that, he attracts disciples. He draws huge crowds. He floors his opponents in debate. Surely there is all the evidence there to suggest that he is God's man. And the disciple Peter declares as much when he says, you are the Messiah, he confesses. The sheer weight of evidence will allow for no other conclusion. But now comes the ironic twist. Yes, Jesus is the genuine article. Yes, he is God's man. Yes, he is the Messiah. But then suddenly, unexpectedly, tragically, everything goes against him. Now, let's just pick up on some of the highlights that we've just read. Things just go from bad to worse. He is crucified. Mark states it simply without any embellishment. And they crucified him. And again in the next verse, it was the third hour when they crucified him. 
Now, Mark spares us all of the agonising details, but his original readers would have known exactly what he meant. It was perfectly clear to them what was going on. It meant that Jesus was dying an excruciating death. And let me just give you a few snippets of what the ancients said about crucifixion. And by the way, none of these people were Christians. The Jewish historian Josephus described crucifixion as the most wretched of all ways of dying. And the Roman lawyer Cicero once said, even the mere word cross must remain far away, not only from the lips of the citizens of Rome, but also from their thoughts, their eyes and their ears. He calls crucifixion the grossest, cruelest and most hideous manner of execution. And the Roman leader Seneca asked in one of his letters, can a man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest and drawing the breath of life in long, drawn-out agony? He would have many excuses for dying even before mounting the cross, says Seneca. For Romans, crucifixion was the cruelest form of capital punishment. It was reserved for murders, for slave revolts and other heinous crimes in the colonies. Roman citizens were never crucified. But Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, was crucified. He was willing, in Seneca's words, to be fastened to the accursed tree. And more than that, he was prepared to suffer consciously. When they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, he didn't take it. He refused the anaesthetic. There was no deadening of the pain. Even on the cross, Jesus refused to be a doped-up Messiah. Can you imagine the irony, the indignity, the shame? Here was God's man, the apparent hero of Mark's story, stripped naked, flogged, spat on, struck in the face, garlanded with thorns and dying a torturous, agonising death. But to add insult to injury, he was mocked. First there were the passers-by, perhaps they were representatives of the crowds that had followed Jesus earlier with such enthusiasm and expectation. But they cried, huh, they jeered, who are you? You are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Come down from the cross, save yourself. And the religious leaders pick up the same taunt. They had been his most determined opponents almost from the very beginning of Mark's gospel. And now they seem to have the last mocking word. He saved others, 
but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, now come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Well, the religious leaders seem to have a point because the forces of nature and even God himself seem to be on their side. At high noon, darkness covered the earth for three hours. The sky went black. What did it mean? Well, the explanation comes with the heart-rending cry in the next verse. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Jesus yells into the blackness, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why, why, why? It was the greatest why question of all time. And it needs to absorb all of our why questions. When I was a uni student many years ago, I always had sympathy for the poor students who had decided to take Philosophy 1. One of their first essay questions went something like this. If God is all good and all powerful, why does he allow evil? Well, it posed a logical conundrum that far exceeded my mental powers and I was thankful for the small mercy that I decided against taking philosophy. But the question wouldn't go away that easily. Later in life, during my years in the pastoral ministry, it would return time and again at various levels of intensity and in a variety of ways. If God is so good, why was my baby still born? If God is so good, why did he let my daughter die of leukemia? If God is so good, why did he let me give birth to a retarded child? If God is so good, why did he let my wife commit suicide? More recently, there was a man who was cleaning our house. And as soon as he found out what I did for a living, out came the questions. I used to believe, he said, but I've seen too much. The other night I was watching 60 Minutes on TV and there was a segment on the massacres in Algeria. If God is so good, what did he allow that to happen? You know, and today all we have to do is substitute Ukraine for Algeria and we have the same question. If God is so good, why does he allow these massacres to happen? Well, as best I could, I directed him, my painter, to the message of the cross. In the cross, we do not have an answer to the question but we do have a solution to the problem. As William Fitch explains in his book, God and Evil, the cross abides 
and to the riddle of evil, sin and suffering. The cross of Christ is the answer of the Christian faith. Here the unsearchable and unanswerable Godhead is the victim of all the enormous and calculated fury of the powers of darkness and evil. In his own person, Jesus suffered the worst evil that hell could dish out. Jesus asked the most penetrating why question of all time and God's only answer is the lingering darkness. One more cry and then Jesus dies. But Mark's gospel, like Steve Martin's movie, has a double irony. The reversal of Jesus' fortunes begins precisely at the moment of his death. Listen to Mark's record. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. He was a Roman centurion of all people who was the first human being to acknowledge what God had revealed at Jesus' baptism and transfiguration. You are my beloved son, said the heavenly voice. Surely this man was the son of God, said the centurion. Not a disciple, not even a Jew, but a Roman centurion was the first human being to recognise Jesus for who he really was. And this is the irony of ironies in Mark's Gospel. He was Jesus, crucified with criminals, mocked by his own people, forsaken by God, dying an agonising death. And yet it is precisely then that a gruff, hardened Roman soldier sees his true identity. This is the Son of God. And that moment of recognition is arguably the very climax of Mark's gospel. As Paul Barnett explains, that a Roman for whom crucifixion was an unmentionable obscenity declares a crucified Jew to be son of God is astounding. Romans only applied that title to the Roman emperor who was associated with power and with triumph. But this soldier applied the title to Jesus, a poor, humiliated, crucified man. This represents an inconceivable reversal in values, Barnett continues. This Gentile is the first man to see Jesus as God sees him, as the Son of God. He sees what even the disciples have not yet seen. This man is the forerunner of many Romans who over the next centuries will declare the crucified one to be the Son of God. Indeed, historically speaking, this man was the first Christian confessor. And this morning, that's where I want to leave you. At the foot of the cross, standing next to that Roman centurion. And as you were there, 
I want you to consider two questions. Firstly, can you say with that centurion, truly, this man is the Son of God? Have you made that confession your own? And then secondly, have you come yet in your spiritual journey to the point where all your why questions can be overshadowed and even dissolved by that greatest why question of all time when Jesus screeched from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let us pray. Oh dear God, we do want to thank you for the gift of your one and only Son. Lord, we thank you that you loved us so much that you gave him to us to save us from our own sin and guilt. And Lord, with this fresh insight into just how he does, Lord, we pray that you will enable us to live lives of gratitude to you and love for you day by day. Lord, bless us this Easter and thank you too as we look forward to Easter Sunday that we can remember his glorious resurre resurrection and your mighty power. In your name we pray.